1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the final episode in this series of Sky Histories. Not What You Thought You Knew. I'm your host, Dr Fern Riddell, and while I am gutted this is the last one for now, it won't be Not What You Thought You Knew if we didn't have a unique story to end on. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Sacred Band of Thebes, an elite warrior troop from the 4th century BC, supposedly consisting of 150 pairs of male lovers. And I'll be speaking to Professor of Ancient History at the University of Warwick, James Davidson, and Professor of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies at Bucknell University, Stephanie Larson. Those are experts from across the globe, and I'm really excited. But first, let's head back almost 2,400 years ago, to ancient Thebes. It's late at night, and we're standing at the tomb of Iolaus, one of ancient Greece's mythical heroes us was the lover of Heracles, who you might recognise better by his Roman name Hercules. Here at his tomb, amongst the flickering flames of the oil lamps, men arrive in pairs, one final stop before they head into a great battle. They're here to pledge their undying devotion, not just to the great city-state of Thebes, but also to each other, because these soldiers are unique in the ancient world. Their bonds are not just formed in training camps and on battlefields, but also from love. But what do we mean by love in the ancient world? And when we talk about the sacred band of Thebes being 150 pairs of male lovers, are we referring to the definition of homosexual love that we today would understand? Thebes was one of the most important cities in ancient Greece, some might even say a rival to the powerhouse of Athens and it's home to many legendary heroes and gods, Heracles, Dionysus, even Oedipus. And for the men and boys who lived there, their way of life was one we may be surprised at. Because here, adoration, affection and physical desire between those of the male sex is celebrated. In fact, it informs how the city is run, its political life and the education system of ancient Thebes. And as we already know, its military life with the sacred band. One of the problematic areas with this period of history is the idea of love between older men and younger boys. Our popular consciousness understands this in very simple terms as paedophilia or abuse. So this is something we will be digging into and finding out just how true that understanding of it is. I want to understand what this world is actually like. So to add more context to the Sacred Band, I'm speaking with someone who I know will totally alter my view of the ancient world. I'm joined now by James Davidson, and he's Professor of Ancient History at the University of Warwick, specialising in the social history of ancient Greece. Now, James, the Sacred Band of Thieves is a troop of soldiers who comprised of 150 pairs of male lovers. Is this a rare thing in the ancient world, or is this very common?
2: The Army of Lovers, as it's called, um, is unique in Greek history, but it's based on best soldiers are going to be pairs of male lovers, like Achilles and Patroclus, or Heracles and Iolaus, so this idea of the male couple being very good at, um, let's say, feats of self-sacrificing gallantry, something like that. There are lots of accounts of where this comes from. Some people say it comes from um, people looking at the alternative, which is tribal alliances and family alliances and that the important thing about same-sex devotion, what I call not homosexuality, but homo-besottedness, you're prepared to die for this person that you're so in love with. Um, Eros in, in ancient Greece is the most overblown, you know, life-changing, life-churning kind of emotion, you know, to call it love is, is something very pale by, by comparison. Um, they think that this is a way in which you can rise above tribe and family um, and perhaps for the state, for the polis. You can Another word for the army of lovers is the army of the city, the army of the polis, of the state. So that shows you a weird way in which um, homosexual passion um, can help to break down tribal, family, clan alliances in favour of a city alliance, in favour of a a universal political um, relationship.
1: So it's not a case of same-sex desire being something that is hidden or hushed up, as we might think of it in our most recent past. This is something that is an indelible part of ancient Greek society?
2: I think so. Think Think of all those famous people in the 19th century or the early 20th century and you're trying to work out you know were they or weren't they did they really or didn't they you know all these letters and sometimes you get a coded diary in which you think oh gosh right or someone catches a disease and you think ah well in that case but in the ancient world we have none of that we only have these great public displays but the publicity is also disguising because i mean i I sometimes talk about in terms of purple smoke or pink smoke if someone is shouting about something, you know, if they're going around um, performing the role of being an admirer, what we, um, the Greeks call an erastes, it's almost a public role they've got. That doesn't necessarily mean that they really have any feelings for a particular boy. It just means that they're taking on the public role of that uh, uh, a lover. They're celebrating them um, for some kind of social purpose.
1: You've. Touched on this very briefly, this love of boys or a particular boy, and today we might recognise the term pederasty, which is is connected to this period or, or is drawn from ancient Greece. Can you explain a little bit more about that, and also how our modern day conceptions might be um, might find this difficult?
2: Um, well, first of all, there is the so the, the whole question of sex is important. Are we talking about? people having sex with underage boys for instance.
1: Is that what we're talking about?
2: No, what we're talking about are people following um 18 year olds around or 18 year olds following under 18s around um, sometimes in a group um, writing poems about how wonderful they are um, writing and this is a very specific formula in Athens they will write so and so is beautiful and they are right on a gate, outside the gate of the boy, um, out on the door, um, in the gymnasium. Sometimes we hear about them camping outside the house. Um, Plato has a wonderful vision of um, a guy called Carmedes, who, who has a, you know, his, 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 one of his relatives, and he turns out to be an oligarch, um, a fascist, if you like, a right-wing revolutionary, but he, turns the clock back and pictures him in his youth as this great beauty. So we think he's about 18 and everybody is admiring him. So he's in the gymnasium, he's followed around by a group of older men and also the younger boys are staring at him as if he were a statue, as Plato says, as if he were a statue. So it's this open public culture of worshipping a particular youth.
1: So it's an idealisation of someone's physicality or their emotions or both the, the person that they are but there isn't a, a physical sexual partnership between those two or a relationship between those two people you don't think
2: um so the word kalos which they use all the time means noble in terms of you know your class your status your good character um, and it also means beautiful sometimes they specify they're saying he was kalos in appearance he was nice to look at um, but normally they just leave it, like Carlos. we don't know. And they, I think they, they think that good people are good looking. Um, but it is physical, it's also about the body. You know, this is a culture where in the gymnasium, people are exercising naked. So you show what a great person you are because you've got fantastic musculature. You know, you've got great pecs, you're a good person. You're from a noble family. Um, even in the, you know, in the Homeric epics, People say, Gosh, you're so good looking, you must come from a good family, you know. Whereas the opposite word, ice cross, means shameful, ugly, and low class. So there's this constant mixing of these three things. But the body is definitely there. So um, one of Comedy's cousins says to Socrates in the narrative of Plato, um, Well, Socrates, let me tell you, if you saw him naked, you would forget about his face. <laughs> His body is so stunning, <laughs> and they use the same word, stunning. Ecclesis, you know, you're going, to be, you're going to have your mind blown by this body, um, all wrapped up in eros. So, yes, it's definitely physical.
1: So, we have this idea of the ancient Greeks as, as some of the forefathers of modern thought, of a, a, a golden time in history. Is it actually that part of the society is just deeply shallow, <laughs> or is it if they, with this fascination of the body and the idealisation of youth and beauty and, and physicality is, I mean, in many ways, this is something we would very much recognise about as, as, a, as an issue in our modern society.
2: Well, where does it come from? You know, the Greek word gymnasium, you know, is what started out, you know, the, the whole movement to of the Olympics in the end of the 19th century, the whole body culture. Um, from the end of the 19th century those you know old-fashioned photographs where people are posing as if they were greek statues with little fig leaves tied over their genitals the whole body culture also you know is a a greek revival in lots of ways. Mm,
1: Eugene Sandown the very famous bodybuilder of the late 19th century who dressed as if he was a greek statue.
2: That's right, so there was i mean sometimes it 's like an alibi for for people to look at um you know sexy men <laughs> pretending that it 's all you know kind of appreciation of Greek culture, as Oscar Wilde might have um, referred to it
1: so if we have this this part of Greek society that is the celebration of of uh, late adolescents young men young sort of older boys. Where does the shift come to the sacred band of Thebes, where we know that this is this is men who are sharing physical love as well and who are who are talked about as lovers is there is there an age of consent in Greek society, or is it is it are relationships with very young boys frowned on, or is it something that's accepted with older men? I mean, sorry I have so many questions about this
2: <laughs> The fundamental thing to recognize, I think is that. Ancient Greek societies, almost all of them uh, that we can know of, are organized around age um, in a kind of very formal tribal way, if you like. Um, They don't have birthdays in the way that we recognize them. The calendar is all over the place. It's a lunar, solar calendar. And for that reason or for any other reason, they're not really obsessed with birth dates. So what seems to happen is that, in Athens at least, um, when you think you're 18... You have to go to your village you have to go to your um, parish and you present yourself naked or I guess your family presents you naked in the parish and they say we think he's 18 do you agree and they say okay he's 18 and then they send him to the city council and they have to say okay we agree he's 18 and if the if they say no he's not they will fine the parish wow because, you know, they might want to inherit early or something like that. It's quite important. And then the people dispute this, but I think it's pretty certain that everybody has their birthday at the same time, i.e. new year. <laughs> at the beginning of the, the Athenian calendar, which is in the mid, midsummer, um, every, all, everyone who's 18 becomes a single age class. It's like being at school, yes? Mm. You're in a year. And that carries on until you retire at the age of um, 60. So you can't hold any office, you can't become a general, you can't sit on a jury until you're 30. And the formula for those who are rejected by the council is go back to boys. So we know that boys is pides um, can be a very specific name for under 18s. But it's also used in the way that we use it, boys or anybody who's young. So the under 18s, the technical official group of boys are protected by law about who they're allowed to mix with. So the, even the 18 year olds are not allowed to go into the gymnasium and talk to the boys. They even have special slaves who are called pedagogues, paedagogoi, which means boy escorts and they're chaperones and they are there to protect the boys from unwanted attention not so much that they're going to have you know they're going to be raped or something like that but they're going to be seen to be alone with people so just like i always think the 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 comparison is like um women in a jane austen novel Mm, yeah seen alone together you know well that's damaging to your reputation so you have to so this this what plato talks about in the symposium is this great what he calls a complicated paradox which is that you're supposed to admire them you're supposed to follow them around you're supposed to say how beautiful they are but at the same time the boys are protected fiercely by these slaves by these laws about who's allowed to see who in the gymnasium it's all very complicated
1: so where does where do same-sex relationships then fit is that something that happens in your 20s and your 30s that you might form an attachment to to another man or an older man?
2: So first of all, you have these different kinds of um, relationship. You have this pack, what I call the wolf pack of admirers, yes? Which we see in Plato's comedies, elsewhere. This is literally a group of people following you around, saying how wonderful you are. It's a weird custom. The Romans thought it was very weird. Um, And then you have one-on-ones. Then you have relationships. So-and-so is so-and-so's admirer. And um, when Plutarch is talking about the Sacred Band of Thebes, um, Plutarch, who's a writer from the Roman period, but is a local boy, he's from uh, very close to the Thebes. um, He talks about um, this institution of the Sacred Band. Almost everything we know is from this single author, single text. And he says that he knows a piece of Aristotle who's much earlier saying that they would plight, they would pledge themselves at the tomb of Heracles' boyfriend, Iolaus. So we know that that is a one-to-one partnership, if you like. So that's another kind of relationship. Um, And those must be somehow formalized, institutionalized. We hear about um, different rituals in Crete, for instance, where there's a kind of mock kidnapping and the uh, the boy is kidnapped and then the two uh, both the admirer who's been allowed to kidnap the boy in this mock tug-of-war and the boy who's been allowed to be kidnapped in this mock tug-of-war tug of are given special titles and special clothes to wear so they're recognized by society so these are political relationships and when plato talks about i think this is one of the great um, misreadings of ancient greek homosexuality so plato in a long um passage talks about what is the right way for someone to yield to a lover you know so they're importuning them they're saying how wonderful they are when is it right to um put out if you like and he concludes that the only reason to put out is for the sake of virtue and so everyone says ah so really it's all about virtue it's all about virtue but it's clear reading between the lines that normally that is not what happens normally And Plato elaborates it. He says it's for virtue. It's not for political advancement. It's not for money. And the implication is that normally it's for political advantage and it's for money. So you make a very good attachment that will last you a long time. Now then, you might get married.
1: I was going to ask, what is so we have we have we have this idea of you have young boys who are admired who may pick up a, a. what we might understand as a, a wealthy patron or someone who could advance them, that connection remains a lifelong one. And throughout that time they may also marry, they may become they may see a, a sexuality that is much broader. I mean, are we talking about bisexuality here? Is that really what ancient Greece is? Is just an entire state of bisexuals?
2: <laughs> um Well, yes, but in a way that's because you're assuming this, you know, sense of sexual orientation. If it's an institution, if it's something which is really important for your future, if everyone's doing it in this public way, we don't know what happens behind closed doors. All we know is that people are writing poems, um, saying how beautiful someone is physically, Um, then there's nothing to preclude you also having children, marrying. In some cases, we know that the marriage, um, the heterosexual marriage, follows the, the same-sex, the homosexual association. And I think no one would disagree that ancient Greece is a patriarchal society. But the fact that men are also sexually objectified, you know, in the same way that women are normally sexually objectified through the rest of history, if you like, does mean that there's an interesting, that the, the whole kind of men versus women is more complicated in ancient Greece. That there's, you know, it's the them and us is also a us and us. Do you see what I mean? So um, one of the, the earliest references to rape, uh, to a legal definition of rape in our terms, normally rape means kidnap, yes? Mm-hmm. Rapere, to snatch, um, in Greek, harpazine. But the first definition we have is from Crete, uh, law code in Gortin and it has the definition anyone who has sex by force with someone so it's the first definition of sex by rape as sex by force Um, and it says with a man or with a woman so there's this weird kind of gender equality or gender substitution which comes out of this um, Greek homosexuality which I think people have not really thought about as much that there's a kind of um, they are seen as two sides of the same coin, if you like. And the the men who are objectifying women, um, the courtesans especially, um, have themselves been objectified. Have been? They know what it's like to be a sex object, if you like.
1: To go back to the Sacred Band of Thebes for my last question, how were they seen in ancient Greece society? Were they the pinnacle of achievement? Were they celebrated or were they something that was a surprise?
2: This is a very difficult question because there's very little information about the Sacred Band of Thebes. Although they're very famous for us, as I say, almost all of our information comes from Plutarch writing, you know, um, how many years? 400 years after the Last Gasp, the Battle of Chironia. Um, One important thing he says is that when Philip of Macedon, Alexander's father, having slaughtered them having kind of eradicated the sacred band of thieves was walking over the battlefield he said uh, shame on anyone who th- who thinks that these men are doing anything shameful so he was celebrating them and we're all thinking like what's what shameful thing might they might be they be suspecting um so he's celebrating them as as they were
1: I think one of the things that James has made really clear is this idea of an age of consent. The fact that the boys under the age of 18 were considered protected in ancient Thebes. And this is an idea or concept we can understand very much today. Consent around sex and the age of consent has always been important to us. In fact, here in the UK, it was the Victorians who fought very hard to make sure the age of consent was raised from just 13 to 16 in 1885. So knowing that boys under the age of 18 were protected also removes any arguments that some might try to make for the ancient Greeks supporting paedophilia. That's just another example of how history can be corrupted by popular misunderstanding and the truth lost. So here's what we've learned so far about ancient Thebes and the sacred band. Society was patriarchal, Men idolised and obsessed over one another, and relationships were often formed between older and younger men that were seen as educational, political and economically beneficial. And finally, that these relationships could include physical and emotional connection. I love the term James used there, that of homo-besottedness between men, and it does leave me wondering what life was like for women in this city. But I think that's a subject we're going to have to leave until our next series. So now we know more about ancient Thebes, I want to know more about the evidence for its famous warriors. Plato, one of our most famous ancient Greeks, and a founding father of Western thought, wrote, If there were only some way of contriving that a state or an army should be made up of lovers and their beloved, they would be the very best governors of their own city, abstaining from all dishonor and emulating one another in honor, and when fighting at each other's side, although a mere handful... They would overcome the world. For what lover would not choose rather to be seen by all mankind than by his beloved, either when abandoning his post or throwing away his arms, he would be ready to die a thousand deaths rather than endure this. For who would desert his beloved or fail him in the hour of danger?" That sounds a lot like the Sacred Band to me, So to add more context to this legend, I have someone who has led an archaeological team to excavate the Temple of Apollo in Thebes in 2013, uncovering graves, a garbage pit, and various other important items to our understanding of the sacred band and the wider world of ancient Greece.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: I'm joined now by Stephanie Larson, and she's a professor of classics and ancient Mediterranean studies at Bucknell University and co-directs the Thebes Senea excavation project. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Now, the Sacred Band of Thebes are an elite troop consisting of 150 pairs of male lovers and were formed in the 4th century B.C., Can you tell me a little about what Theban culture and society was like at that time?
3: Um, One thing I want to mention at the outset is that we don't know that much about the sacred band. We don't know that much about its composition. And so a lot of the sources that we have for this particular military group are much later. So, in fact, the sources that mention uh, Theban military groups... Um, and the real importance of them, are very difficult to assess. They date much later than the sacred band was supposed to have been formed. Um, our main source is Plutarch, and he was from the area around Thebes. He was from a town called Chironea. Uh, um, so he was um, very pro theban He was very, also, he was elaborating in his histories. Um, and he often dates to, well, he does date to the later part of the, um, first century CE so this is over 400 years after the events that he discusses and so it'd be like you telling a story about something that happened 400 years ago how much can we really mm. trust you to tell the truth um, and so, so in, a, in a way the foundational underpinnings of the sacred band and our knowledge of them are extremely insecure.
1: Well should, should the question I should really be asking you then first off is did the sacred band of Thebes really exist?
3: Right. That's a good question. That's a very good question. I would say that the Sacred Band of Thebes probably existed. I would say that the Sacred Band of Thebes probably didn't exist in the way that we might like to imagine them existing because of later elaborations on their story and later use of the story of uh, homoerotic military people. um, The, 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 the fascination that we might have even in today's times, because we're actually much more repressed to sexual culture um, than the Greek culture was. Um, And so we have maybe, we have sort of become fascinated by this idea of um, men in the military who might be gay. But gay is not a word that we can use of ancient people at all, because they didn't think of the world in sort of these dichotomies, gay, not gay, gay, straight, etc. The, the sexuality of uh, ancient Greece was on a sort of continuum. Um, and there were, there were men who had gay relationships, homosexual, homosocial relationships, homosexual relationships, and also um, heterosexual relationships. And so it's not a thing that we necessarily want to focus on too much. I mean, in, in making that the only defining characteristic of the sacred band. In other words, the real thing to remember actually about the Sacred Band is that they were the first uh, paid military force um, that we really know of um, from uh, Boeotia, which is the area around Thebes, the sort of region of Thebes. Um, and because we we know more more about the um, sort of ad hoc military formations um, in antiquity, and most. Uh, soldiers in antiquity were um, citizen soldiers or farmers, and they were soldiers part of the time, but not all the time. And so the Sacred Band is a really interesting phenomenon because it's one of the first that we know of, of a a sort of professional standing army um, that was trained and uh, sort of housed um, in the city, state itself, and paid for by the state, and uh, so that they're professionals. Um, We had mercenary soldiers too in antiquity, but they're not as, um, they're not the same as kind of the Sacred Band. So that's one thing to remember about them. That's actually the most important um, Greek historical point about the sacred band. It's not the, the homosocial um, nature of the supposed nature of the sacred band.
1: So let's go back to the very, very beginning of this conversation and, and really set the scene. Where is Thebes in the fourth century? And I know that's, that seems like such a silly question to ask, but what is the world like and where, is, where does Thebes sit in it culturally and socially? The fourth century is a complicated century. Um, The Peloponnesian War had just
3: finished and Sparta had just defeated Athens in this long protracted war um, at the end of the fifth century. Um, And after the defeat of Athens um, by Sparta and the allies in the Peloponnesian War, we find ourselves in this this century where it seems to me like so many Greek city-states are just constantly vying for power There are various parts of this century. One is called the Corinthian War in the beginning of the century, um, where Sparta, um, is pitted against some of the allies, Athens and Thebes ally together, and Corinth and Argos and Persia even allies together against Sparta because they don't want Sparta to become too powerful. And so, one of the things that you, one of the themes of the fourth century is you have all these shifting alliances between city states in order to try to prevent one or the other from becoming more powerful either Athens or Thebes or uh, Sparta, and all of these other tiny little places that are allying back and forth with them. So, it's a very chaotic period, it's very complicated. Um, there was a peace in the beginning of the fourth century called the King's Peace that Persia had sort of brokered uh, between um, the Greek city-states, um, and that was very dangerous for Thebes, if we're going to talk about Thebes mostly, because um, that peace called the King's Peace from the King of Persia uh, declared that Persia would control all of what's now Turkey, Ionia, And declared that all the other city states would become autonomous, which means, you know, they would be ruling themselves. They couldn't form leagues. They couldn't form alliances. They couldn't form coalitions with themselves. And Sparta was supposed to be the guardian of this peace, right, and had the power to enforce the clauses of this peace. So Sparta was a little bit in power at the beginning of the fourth century. And Sparta went up to Thebes and installed a garrison there. Um, which was very um, detrimental, right, to Thebes, and they exiled a bunch of people that were anti-Spartan, and they also killed a number of other people in Thebes who were anti-Spartan. So um, in the beginning of the fourth century, everybody's kind of pretty exhausted. Sparta has been put into this position of power, of being the law enforcer for a Persian-brokered peace, which is interesting. Um, And all of these exiles from Thebes go down to Athens and they sort of decide to foment revolt. One of them um, is the famous uh, uh, boyatarch, which is the head Boeotian, one of the head Boeotian uh, figures um, named Pelopidas. And he goes down to Athens and he comes back a few years later and basically liberates the city from Athens. They install a democracy, which is not something that Thebes is known for. Usually Thebes is kind of an oligarchic uh, government, but they install maybe a democracy. Um, And um, then for the next uh, few decades, Thebes uh, tries to become more powerful, and it essentially um, does do this um, pretty successfully. It goes down into the Peloponnese, it has a bunch of military campaigns, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, It goes up to Thessaly, which is north of Thebes, a region north of Thebes, and tries to sort of um, ally itself with a coalition of Thessalian cities. Um, But really, in this time, you've got just these city states vying for power. Um, Thebes is becoming more preeminent than it has in the historical period, but it's very short lived.
1: Can you give me a bit of background into how the Sacred Band of Thebes came to be formed? Because you're describing this really warlike, exciting, you know, shifting sands kind of a place. How do people decide that they need to have professional soldiers? Um, Traditionally, the date of the
3: sacred band is in the early 4th century, like 379, 378. And this is right right after the Spartans' garrison is is, uh, kicked out. Uh, So perhaps the Thebans thought they needed to protect their citadel. Right, and they needed to have a standing army for that. So this is a very disruptive time. It's been probably a dangerous time for them. Um, we do have evidence that um, from earlier historians before 379, uh, that there were some sort of select Thebans. There were 300 Thebans um, at the Battle of Plataea in 479 against the Persians. Um, and so um, there, are, there are indications that there may have been a group of 300 kind of soldiers before the early fourth century, but they're never called the sacred band um, at that point. Um, Most of the sources don't even in fact use the name sacred band.
1: How does the name
3: the sacred band come about? Um, Sometimes they're known as the city band in one source. um, But the sacred band may have something to do with the fact that is recorded again in this late source, Plutarch, that in Thebes, uh, lovers, uh, male lovers and their their younger lovers, they would go to a sacred shrine of uh, Iolaus, who's a character from mythology, who was from Thebes. He was the nephew of Heracles, who was also from Thebes in mythology. And Heracles and Iolaus used to hang out together. And it was re- reported by later sources that they were lovers, although they are actually also related. But that's, that's kind of interesting, because Thebes has a lot of incestual uh, mythology in, in the city. Um, but anyway, so um, the lovers of Thebes used to go, according to these late sources, down to the sanctuary and um, basically swear their, uh, swear their fidelity to the other, or um, make sort of a a pledge to each other, pledging um, some sort of love in your relationship. It's not really love either. I mean,
1: I was, go- I was going to ask you about this, because when we say lovers and sexuality, we really we understand that in very controlled terms.
3: So in, in ancient Greece as a whole, especially in the 6th century B.C. and the 5th century B.C. and more also into the 4th century. And we're not sure, sure how long this lasted. There was uh, basically uh, pederastic male relationships mm. that were considered to be normal and expected um, between between an older man and a younger boy. Um, not too young. So the younger boy is about, well, possibly verging on the age of going into the military. So mid-teens to late teens. So possibly 17, 18, et cetera, 15, maybe. I mean, it depends. We're, we're not really sure in every city state, like I said, is a little bit different. And the older man um, is already established in the aristocratic families. He's already established as a soldier. He's already established possibly as a political force in the city uh, state. And he is basically um, going to be the mentor to this younger man and they're they're known by the greek terms uh eromanos, which means the beloved one and the erastes which means the lover the one who does the loving um, and this relationship um, was really important for the young boy who comes from an also an aristocratic family this is very class specific um, if you can talk about class in ancient greece anyway um, and so this this relationship is very important for this boy because this this relationship brings connections between the two families and between a sort of a networking experience for this young boy. And um, in this relationship, it is partly sexual, um, and there is definitely touching. We have lots of um, uh, literary sources for this. We have lots of vase paintings that show this, um, actually. Um, But it's not just about sex. It's about also teaching about philosophy, teaching about politics, teaching possibly even about music and um, poetry, especially, and that kind of thing. So um, it's very much part of the sexual continuum of ancient Greece and um, the men in these relationships wouldn't have called themselves gay or homosexual. Um, because they were also expected at to be the older ones were expected to get married and have children and to have, you know, heterosexual relationships as well. And usually there was an end point to these relationships. So this was a, this was a gift in a way to the young boy um, in, in his terms of his education. And as soon as he got old enough, then that relationship would be finished, they would be considered to be old lovers. But it's very interesting for us to think about these kinds of uh, relationships that are so different from what we would call normal. And in fact, we would call this relationship in our modern societies mostly pederastic, I'm kind of horrified by this, but it was totally considered to be normal.
1: I'm, a, I'm an expert on Victorian sexuality, and I know how hard just in the 19th century we have to work to try and get people to understand that sex sexual ideas and attitudes shift and change and aren't bound by the boundaries that we put them in today, especially when we're looking back in the past. But what fascinates me about your period, about this period in the ancient world, is we really struggle to really grasp what's happening at this time. And historians ourselves can get quite touchy about how this era is displayed, because if we talk about pederasty, there's an instant... Connection for a lot of people to pedophilia, and the idea that this this sexual relationship is something that is um, morally abhorrent to us in a modern world. do you think that 's possibly why some historians have verged far more on the idea that these relationships are somehow noble because they believe there was no touching or, or um, no sexual contact, and that actually the reality as you've said, from the vases, from everything else, shows us that there was. And we just have to understand that the past is a very different place.
3: Oh, absolutely. The past, as it's been said by um, various historians, ancient historians and anthropologists, is a foreign country. And we have, since the Victorian period especially, um, sort of extolled the ancient Greeks as being these noble, amazing philosophers who were just kind of sitting around um, thinking about all these wonderful thoughts about excellence and beauty and virtue. Well, in fact, they were just regular people. And they also had um, different roles and different rules for their sexualities. Um, and so, so, so yeah, we really have to understand that the world was a very different place then and their cultural rules were very different than ours. I would, hate to, I would hate to think of the idea of someone thinking that it was pedophilia. I mean, that is a Greek word, the love of the boy, the love of the child, but it was pederasty in a sense of institutionalized education. So the focus wasn't only on the sexuality, that's the thing. And that's, I think, one of the legacies of the Victorian period, is that we are obsessed with the idea of any sort of sexuality that still deviates from what some people consider to be the norm. Um, One of the foremost scholars um, who's written most on the Sacred Band is David Lateo from the San Francisco State University. And he's actually argued that it would make no sense to have an um, aromanos-erastes relationship, a beloved and a lover relationship involved in the same military unit. Because from an age perspective, at a 17 or 18 year old person, 20 year old person, and a 30 or you know, early 30s person, this doesn't make sense um, from a military standpoint.
1: Well, so so has this come about? Basically, what's happened is we know that in, or at least sources tell us in Thebian culture, that the part of the education system of young men was that they would form this connection that was both sexual and educational with an older man in their life. And also then that Thebes had a band of warriors who were professional, who were incredibly successful at some points. And that throughout the centuries and throughout people's excitement and interest in history those two worlds have just become mashed together and so the idea that the sacred band of thebes were a pairs of gay lovers doesn't actually have any basis in history at all
3: it doesn't have much that's true now one of the things uh, david latteo has suggested is they could be former lovers former pairs or fair pairs of former lovers which would make a lot more sense they would still have a bond together they would still be very close together. Um, and ancient Greek sources from elsewhere talk about the bond that an older lover and a young beloved had for the for the life, but it wasn't considered to be a sexual bond anymore after that original sort of um, institutionalized educational period was over. Um, and so I think we could see the sacred band as pairs of lovers, but possibly as Lateo suggests, pairs of former lovers. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, And if we think about also the friendships that people who fight with each other have, it might be more useful for us to think about that kind of relationship uh, as well, grafted onto the the former lover category, right? So these these men now are progressing on in their lives, in their military lives, and they are fighting with each other side by side. And when you do that, you develop the band of brothers kinds of mentality. Um, which is very well documented in psychological literature and military literature from contemporary times all the way back. Um, so uh, you can think of these people as being very close as elite corps often are anyway. You know, think of the Marines, the, a band of Marines that goes to war together or any other elite corps from any other country. You know, they come back and those are their people. You know, those are their family. They, they will not do anything to, to betray them. They will always support them. And so I think it might be more useful to think about the sacred band in this way, as a sacred core of very elite warriors who had previous relationships but are now um, fighting together and they're from the same city so they also have the same sort of um, civic identity.
1: Is the notion of the sacred band being made up of pairs of, of old lovers or current lovers or men who are incredibly tightly bonded? Is this something that is commented on by other Greek cities or by, or by other people looking at um, Thebes at this time? Is it something that, the, that is seen as unusual or is it, is it common? Is, is, we're talking about Thebes as a very specific city-state here, but is this notion of bonding and, and male education and male sexuality one that's shared across ancient Greece at this time?
3: Um, I think it's shared across ancient Greece, absolutely. And for example, as you talked about the sources, the military historian, Xenophon, who is the closest source in time to Theban military affairs of the fourth century and Spartan military affairs and everything. He he does not say anything specific about an erotic Theban army. Um, Even even though he devotes tons of information and pages to the activity of the Theban military during this uh, fourth century time from 375 to 362. Um, Now, you could say that that's maybe because he thought he wanted to, um, uh, he was an anti-Theban, he was pro-Spartan, but there are other pro-Theban sources that don't mention the sacred band either as an erotic band. Um, So it doesn't seem to be a thing that was really truly an obsession with any writer at this time. And the fact that... um, you know, pederastic relationships were kind of uh, expected in common in aristocratic circles across ancient Greek city-states, leads me to believe that it really wasn't um, a big deal. And the later sources that mention the erotic nature of the sacred band are kind of utopian sources, and they uh, has argued this, they're, t- they're talking about um, the relationship between lovers and the support of democracy, and lovers and fighting against tyranny. Um, uh, There's a famous story from Athenian history in which um, the two lovers Harmodius and Aristogiton actually kill one of the old kings um, in early Athenian history and so they were were supposedly lovers and so there's a lot of um, situating um, in in literature of um, uh, homosocial um, men fighting against tyranny and so it becomes a trope, it becomes a, a theme of literature and not necessarily a reflection of reality.
1: How did the Sacred Band come to an end and why don't we still have them today? Uh, The
3: Sacred Band fought in a number of battles in the fourth century um, that we know of, um, in which uh, Thebes and Boeotia in general became really quite prominent. Uh, They call it the Theban hegemony. Hegemony is a little bit of an overused term. The Theban hegemony lasted only nine years, according to the major historical periods, but whatever. Um, And after they had established this sort of decade of uh, power in in Greece, um, they uh, um, had to reckon um, on the ground with the power of Macedon under Philip II, um, who was Alexander the Great's father, Um, and he had been gaining power um, in the last part of the uh, fourth century. Uh, and he had um, been solving some problems for major Greek city-states that had always been fighting with each other since the end of the Peloponnesian War. And so he was (laughs) gathering allies and people knew that he was very powerful. Um, And so they were were allying themselves with him. Um, But he he came down to central Greece because um, some of his friends that he had just made, some of his allies appealed to him because um, they were sparring with the Thebans over some territories in central Greece. And so Philip uses this, this um, appeal as an excuse to come down into central Greece. And he finds um, the army um, of the allies, including Thebes and the sacred band waiting for him um, at a place called Kyrenea, And this is in 338. Um, and Kyronia is a really, really amazing place because it's a, it's a valley, essentially. It's a big, broad valley about three miles across. And it's like the pass into south, southern Greece, the, the central part of southern Greece. And so he, um, he, this is where they have to stand in order to prevent them from coming. It's sort of like Thermopylae was to, to the Greeks um, in the Persian Wars. Um, and so per- Philip comes down. He's got 30,000 infantry. Um, he's a huge force. He's got a lot of cavalry as well. Um, He also has a different kind of um, weaponry. He has a very long spear called a sarissa, which is twice as long as the normal Greek hoplite uh, spear. Um, So that's very uh, damaging. (laughs) Um, And so they basically fight together with the Thebans and their allies. Um, And Philip is on the right fighting the Athenians who are allied with Thebes at the time. And he sets his son, Alexander, who's later to become Alexander the Great um, on the left and they fight the so-called sacred band Um, on the left. And um, Philip feigns a withdrawal, and so the Athenians kind of follow him, um, and then the cavalry sort of attacks the sacred band on the other side. Um, And supposedly this is where the sacred band is annihilated by Alexander the Great and um, his um, fellow general. We have some really interesting evidence for this just that just was published this year. And I'd like to mention um, Mariah Liston, who's a very good osteologist. She has gone. Uh, we work with her at our excavation in Thebes, too. And she's looking at our skeletons because we have a cemetery above the temple. Anyway, she's doing all of our uh, work here on our on our uh, skeleton skeleton material. But she has recently published. In fact, I think it's just all, just out maybe for a month. Um, the skeletal uh, material that was saved from the Battle of Chironaea in 338. Um, The original excavators, I believe it was, I can't remember what year, in the early 19th century, they excavated um, the burial site of supposedly the Theban burials. And they saved some of the bone material. They they unfortunately um, threw away a lot of it. But they saved what they thought was the most um, impressive uh, bone material from that. And they found seven rows of 254 skeletons, very well known. That's marked today with the lion of Kyrenea. You may have seen pictures of this. And uh, Mariah Liston has uh, analyzed these uh, heads, crania mostly, and leg pieces. And she's found um, some really cool things. Uh, These these damage uh, was very traumatic to the crania of these people. Um, She's analyzed a lot of different um, heads. All of them have, all but one have blunt force trauma in the sort of, around death. Um, There's blows to the faces with objects like rims of shields. Um, You can identify uh, cuts through actual crania with long straight heavy blades like swords. So there's this one particular uh, cranium of a Theban that has actually been slashed from the uh, frontal bone near the hairline and it went all the way back down through the head behind the eyes um, to the nose to the top of the jaw. Um, and removed the, the whole brain case in the upper face. So this guy was kind of like defaced wow. completely. And he would have been... Wow. Yeah, I know. And it's just been published. And the picture is amazing. It's on the, um, the cover of a book. The book is called... It's a, it's a collection of new approaches to ancient, to Greek and Roman warfare, new approaches to Greek and wo- Roman warfare from 2020. And it's edited by a man named Lee Bryce, who's an American military historian. Anyway, so that's where this um, article appears. Um, and that, that head of that person that was defaced with the sword um, is on the cover of that, of that volume. But the most interesting part of this is not the gore and all that kind of stuff. But the most interesting part of this is that Moriah has shown that these these people were actually attacked from above. And so this proves, I think, without a doubt, really, that um, what the ancient sources said was true, that Alexander the Great um, basically, uh, with his cavalry, attacked the hoplite phalanx of the sacred band or the Thebans, whichever, however you want to call them. Um, and so they are being at all attacked from the top. All of the skull injuries are shown to be um, attacks from the top or if if they weren't um, on the horses, if Alexander wasn't on the horses, then the Thebans were actually on their knees. Um, and so all of these injuries are coming from the top, which is fascinating. Um, anyway, so this is brand new, um, newly published evidence that the sacred band was really decimated. Like the ancient sources do say, um, at the Battle of Chironia, um with Philip II in charge. And they were all um, buried there.
1: So if the, if the sacred band ends then, or we, around that time, what happens to Thebes next? And, and also what happens to Greek sexuality? I mean, is the, the idea of these sacred lovers, is it one that continues into later Greek life or does it fade at the same time?
3: Well, I don't think it has a relationship per se to the sacred band. Um, and the destruction of the sacred band. Um, I would say that Greek sexuality is always going to be more open and free, ancient Greek sexuality than, uh, than ours is for sure. But the idea of a pederastic uh, aristocratic relationship does not last um, for much further on in Greek history. It's a lot different later. And so you want to think about this ancient pederastic relationship that's happening in the sort of 6th to 5th to mid to late 4th century. And then really things change and the whole Greek world um, is uh, put up into upheaval. After Alexander, things get crazy and chaotic. And there's a lot of cosmopolitanism as well in this part of the world by this time. So um, the old way of Greek aristocratic pederasty is on the wane. I would have to say. But that isn't to say that it is replaced by something that resembles the kinds of obsessive sort of strict sexualities that, that many people in modern culture think are the right ways. Of course, Alexander himself, I think, was reputed and known to have um, male lovers. And Alexander then with Thebes, he comes down later and he uses Thebes as an example. Although the archaeological evidence doesn't really suggest that he raised it to the ground at, the, at that point. But we did, like I said, we don't have a systematic excavation of all of Thebes. And so after Thebes was destroyed uh, by Alexander, um, it never really regained um, any of its historical power until the Middle, Middle Ages. It became a much more um, economic and powerful force again a thousand years later.
1: Stephanie raises some fantastic points about whether the relationships between men and the sacred band of Thebes can be understood within our limited definitions of sexuality today. And it's both tantalising and frustrating to hear that so much archaeological evidence lies hidden under modern Thebes now. Who knows what glorious finds are still to come and just how much evidence of the sacred band could be lying there waiting for us. But even if these elite warriors aren't with us today, their legacy has not been forgotten. The name the Sacred Band was revived by Greece for the first organised military resistance to the Ottoman Empire, during the Greek War of Independence in 1821. Greece had been under Turkish rule since the 15th century, and their fight for independence drew interest and support from the three great powers, Britain, Russia and France even Lord Byron, bringing with him huge amounts of money, arrived in Greece hoping to aid the cause. He died there in 1824, six years before the war ended. So perhaps what we should be asking ourselves about the Sacred Band of Thebes is not just questions around how our attitudes to sexuality have changed over time, but also how long our memories are. Because while ancient Greece might seem like a very foreign country, The idea of a standing army to protect your liberties and your values is one we have never been able to be without. Even today, thousands of years later, human society has not moved on from its warlike and destructive nature. And how bizarre is it that in comparison to today, where gay men and our gay youth still risk death and violence in their modern societies just for existing, In the ancient Greek world, to be attracted to another consenting man was not unusual or hidden, but celebrated. As always, it seems the past has a lot to teach us. So that's it for our last episode of this series of Not What You Thought You Knew, sponsored by Ancestry. What has been your favourite episode of this series? I really want to know. Drop it in a review on your podcast app or share it on social media using the hashtag NotWhatYouThought. And head to skyhistory.co.uk to find out more info on all of our episodes, including heaps of historical articles, competitions, and the latest on Sky History's TV shows. And finally, a big thank you to my guests, Professor James Davidson and Professor Stephanie Larson. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, with research by Mary Unze, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. History's Letters of Love in World War II reveals a remarkable account of the Second World War through a series of real-life love letters. Featuring interviews with their family and starring me, Johnny Pitts, and me, Amy Nuttall, This eight part podcast series tells the brave, tenacious, and touching story of Cyril and Olga's war. We found a place to park our tanks, climbed out, just going to start a fire to make a meal when, phew, bang, phew, bang, one shell dropped about 20 yards one side of the tank, another about the same the other side. I'm dreaming of those three happy months we spent together at home. How quickly they flew. It'll be like a second honeymoon when we start that life again. Download Letters of Love in World War II on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast.